C13 Originals. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. She was one of the most inexhaustible figures in American history. Niece of one president, wife of another, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt forged a path for herself through the 20th century, shaping the lives of innumerable others and creating possibilities for millions. And she did it not least through relentless hard work. There's a wonderful New Yorker cartoon from the FDR years. Two coal miners are at their jobs underground Grimy, tired, on the edges of society, they look up and one says, for gosh sakes, here comes Mrs. Roosevelt. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This universal declaration of human rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We hope its proclamation by the General Assembly will be an event comparable to the proclamation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man by the French people in 1789, the adoption of the Bill of Rights by the people of the United States, and the adoption of comparable declarations at different times in other countries. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Episode 10, on the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. At a time when there are so many issues on which we find it difficult to reach a common basis of agreement, It is a significant fact that 58 states have found such a large measure of agreement in the complex field of human rights. Man's desire for peace lies behind this declaration. The realization that the flagrant violation of human rights by Nazi and fascist countries sowed the seeds of the last world war has supplied the impetus for the work which brings us to the moment of achievement here today. Mrs. Roosevelt spoke these words in Paris at a meeting of the United Nations General Assembly on Thursday, December 9, 1948. Since the death of her husband, Franklin D. Roosevelt, in April 1945, Mrs. Roosevelt had continued to emerge as a vital force in her own right. The story, she had told reporters after FDR died, is over. But of course, it wasn't. There was a famous case many years later where medical students who were being trained to be psychologists were given a case study of a young woman 
with a troubled family and an alcoholic father and a lot of big problems. And they were asked to say, what must have happened to this young woman when she grew up? And most of them said, probably she went into a psychiatric hospital because no one could overcome those early problems. This is the historian, Michael Beschloss. It says so much about Eleanor Roosevelt's values and strength and humanity that having gone through the crucible of that childhood, that she became the great humanistic world figure that she was. As an American delegate to the newly formed United Nations, she became perhaps the single most influential person in the adoption of a universal declaration of human rights. Human rights, although it would have been something that Woodrow Wilson would have touched on, was never discussed with that language and the kind of meaning that we think about it with today. The global context is important. It had been three years since the end of World War II, the deadliest and most vivid conflict between democracy and autocracy in history. The struggle had had its immediate origins in the end of the First World War in 1918, when empires fell and nationalism was on the march. In the same years, the Soviet Union came into being, the German nation in particular rearmed literally and figuratively, preparing to pursue racist and imperialist designs. In the United States, the trauma of the post-Great War era and the Great Depression had given rise to authoritarian impulses from both left and right. The two most dangerous men in America, Franklin Roosevelt had said in 1932, were Douglas MacArthur and Huey Long. For MacArthur could lead a populist revolt from the right and Long from the left. Steadily, President Roosevelt, with much critical assistance from his wife, articulated a democratic creed. Freedom! means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose. To that high concept. In his State of the Union address in 1941, nearly a year before America would at last enter World War II, which had begun in September 1939, FDR had spoken of four freedoms, freedom from want and from fear, as well as freedom of speech and of worship. He said that America and the world is fighting for four freedoms. And he did that to show Americans that if we did have to get into a war, it was not just a war for balance of power, which had happened for centuries, but a war for principles that America uniquely stood for. In the wake of the war, pressure grew for the new United Nations to issue what would become the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the drafting and adoption of which would serve as a kind of capstone to Mrs. Roosevelt's life work. She called the declaration, in fact, her most important task. So after 1945, when FDR died, it was completely natural for Eleanor Roosevelt to say, my husband was a leader in war trying to spread human rights around the world. The war is now over, but the fight is not yet won. We now must continue it with the United Nations. Mrs. Roosevelt was beset by difficulties. 
American interests, including in the State Department, worried about the implications of a Declaration of Human Rights at a time when Jim Crow segregation remained the law of the land in a significant swath of the United States. And the prospect of economic security raised fears that the Declaration was communistic, a verboten possibility, as the Cold War took shape. The forces arrayed against her then were many and formidable. There's great dissent within the State Department over what human rights means. And should the United States even sign on to the Declaration? This is the historian Alita Black. There's a huge division between what political and civil rights are and economic, social, and cultural rights are. Because this is America of Jim Crow. And does the right to education and the right to vote mean that people of color get the right to vote? And if they go to school, oh my God, who did they sit next to? And it's America right dab in the start of the Cold War. And so does the right to a job mean that the government has to give everybody a job? An irony was that the communist bloc was as opposed to the document as any reactionary elements in the United States were. The Soviets in particular were wary, and Mrs. Roosevelt recalled a revealing story of negotiations in Paris in 1948. The Russian delegate Alexei Pavlov was holding forth at great length in his objections to the declaration. According to the New York Times, Pavlov thought the document might lead to war, calling it part of the West's hostility that tends to invade sovereignty. As Mrs. Roosevelt recalled, Pavlov was an orator of great power. The words rolled out of his black beard like a river, and stopping him was difficult indeed. Usually we had to sit and listen. He seemed likely to go on forever. But I watched him closely until he had to pause for breath. Then I banged the gavel so hard that the other delegates jumped in surprise, and before he could continue, I got in a few words of my own. We are here, I said, to devise means of safeguarding human rights. We are not here to attack each other's governments, and I hope when we return on Monday, the delegate of the Soviet Union will remember that. I banged the gavel again. Meeting adjourned. I can still see Dr. Pavlov staring at me in surprise, Mrs. Roosevelt recalled. He was not the first man and would not be the last to be stymied by Eleanor Roosevelt when she was determined to do something. And the something in this case was momentous, the first assertion of universal human rights in world history. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. 
check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier that year, in September, at the Sorbonne, Mrs. Roosevelt had spoken of the impetus behind the Declaration. Drawing on her childhood French, she had addressed the delegates in the native tongue of France. Eleanor writes her own speeches, and the State Department wanted to write this speech, and Eleanor says, oh, no, no, no. So they give Eleanor a draft of the speech, which she totally edits, and she can't stand the introduction. And so the great, joyful, independent part of this is she begins the speech in French, and Secretary Marshall and the American delegation cannot speak French. And so in front of this huge audience in the most prestigious academic institution in France, Eleanor lets her version of democracy and human rights rip out in French, which makes the audience roar and leaves Marshall like, oh my God, what did she say? She was confident at the podium, though her ease masked much preparation. She recalled, I wrote my speech and had it checked over by some of the diplomatic officers, and then I practiced it very seriously. Here is what she said. I have come this evening to talk with you on one of the greatest issues of our time, that is the preservation of human freedom. I have chosen to discuss it here in France, at the Sorbonne, because here in this soil the roots of human freedom have long ago struck deep, and here they have been richly nourished. It was here the Declaration of the Rights of Man was proclaimed, and the great slogans of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity, fired the imagination of men. I have chosen to discuss this issue in Europe because this has been the scene of the greatest historic battles between freedom and tyranny. I have chosen to discuss it in the early days of the General Assembly because the issue of human liberty is decisive for the settlement of outstanding political differences and for the future of the United Nations. In the preamble to the Charter, the keynote is set when it declares, We, the people of the United Nations, determine to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. This reflects the basic premise of the Charter, that the peace and security of mankind are dependent on mutual respect for the rights and freedoms of all. And so what she does in that speech is to really co-opt, if you will, the American tree of liberty with the French commitment to the Declaration of Rights of Man and makes it her own and says, basically, we are all on trial to figure out how to treat each other as equal human beings in the shadow of war. Her attitude, both in September and in December, 
were shaped by her insistence that the democratic values of the Declaration must be paramount. One diplomat had advised her that we point out that all our troubles are rooted in a disregard for the rights and freedoms of the individual and go after the USSR, not, thank heavens, claiming perfection, but saying that under our system we are trying to achieve these rights and freedoms and succeeding better than most. We in the United States have come to realize it means freedom to choose one's job, to work or not to work as one desires. We in the United States have come to realize, however, that people have a right to demand that their government will not allow them to starve because as individuals they cannot find work of the kind they are accustomed to doing, and this is a decision brought about by public opinion which came as a result of the Great Depression in which many people were out of work. But we would not consider in the United States that we had gained any freedom if we were compelled to follow a dictatorial assignment to work where and when we were told. The right of choice would seem to us an important, fundamental freedom. With that speech, she solidifies her position within the administration and the State Department to sort of put them in a box to say that, okay, now their support of the declaration must be public. And at the same time, her six-day-a-week syndicated column, My Day, after that September speech, becomes laser-focused on generating worldwide support for the Declaration. And she no longer hesitates to hold the Russians accountable for their attacks on the United States being hypocritical because of Jim Crow. And her words are so unusually forceful that it's picked up by papers and circulated all throughout Europe, including Russia. She spoke powerfully of the critical distinctions between democracies and authoritarian states. Sometimes the processes of democracy are slow, and I have known some of our leaders to say that a benevolent dictatorship would accomplish the ends desired in a much shorter time than it takes to go through the democratic processes of discussion and the slow formation of public opinion. But there is no way of ensuring that a dictatorship will remain benevolent or that power, once in the hands of a few, will be returned to the people without struggle or revolution. This we have learned by experience, and we accept the slow processes of democracy because we know that shortcuts compromise principles on which no compromise is possible. The world to which she was speaking was seeing the truth of her words firsthand. The Soviets had blockaded Berlin, and what Winston Churchill had called the Iron Curtain was descending. At home in the United States, President Truman faced re-election in a splintered nation where liberals and segregationist conservatives had broken away from the Democratic Party. After the Sorbonne speech, Eleanor is to the barricades because she suspects that Truman will lose in November of 48, and that there will only be three months left to really get this declaration adopted. 
And so she is paddled to the metal to get this extraordinary document ratified and put before the world with the endorsement not only of the United States, but of the major powers and smaller powers of the world. And yet there, Eleanor Roosevelt stood before a global audience, speaking for the eternal amid the temporal. It is not and does not purport to be a statement of law or of legal obligation. It is a declaration of basic principles of human rights and freedoms to be stamped with the approval of the General Assembly by formal vote of its members and to serve as a common standard of achievement for all peoples of all nations. In a recent speech in Canada, Gladstone Murray said, the central fact is that man is fundamentally a moral being, that the light we have is imperfect, does not matter so long as we are always trying to improve it. We are equal in sharing the moral freedom that distinguishes us as men. Man's status makes each individual an end in himself. No man is by nature simply the servant of the state or of another man. The ideal and fact of freedom and not technology are the true distinguishing marks of our civilization. As she spoke in Paris, the work had paid off. The long and meticulous study and debate of which this universal declaration of human rights is the product means that it reflects the composite views of the many men and governments who have contributed to its formulation. I have no doubt this is true of other delegations. And it would still be true if we continued our labors over many years. Taken as a whole, the delegation of the United States believes that this is a good document even a great document, and we propose to give it our full support. The next day, Friday, December 10th, 1948, the United Nations adopted the Declaration. The Soviet Union abstained, as Mrs. Roosevelt recalled. Since the Russian delegation contended that the Declaration put emphasis mainly on 18th century rights, and not enough on economic, social, and cultural rights. Saudi Arabia and South Africa also declined to vote. It is the first occasion on which the organized community of nations has made a declaration of human rights and fundamental freedoms, and millions of people, men and women and children, all over the world will turn for hope and guidance and inspiration to this document. And I must congratulate those who worked so zealously to achieve this result and for so long. And it's particularly fitting that here tonight uh, should be the uh, person who's been the leader in this movement. I refer, of course, to Mrs. Roosevelt, the delegate of the United States. It was the culmination of years of work. 
when President Truman had appointed Mrs. Roosevelt to be a delegate to the UN in late 1945. She had told the readers of her popular My Day newspaper column, It is an honor, but also a very great responsibility. I know it has come to me largely because my husband laid the foundation for this organization through which we all hope to build world peace. The time has come, however, when we must recognize that our mutual devotion to our own land must never blind us to the good of all lands and of all peoples. In the end, as Wendell Wilkie said, we are one world, and that which injures any one of us injures all of us. Only by remembering this will we finally have a chance to build a lasting peace. Her appointment may have had its origins in her marriage, but the fruits of her labor were all her own. The goal had been set, the principles established. As she said in Paris, In conclusion, I feel that I cannot do better than to repeat the call to action by Secretary Marshall in his opening statement to this assembly. Let this third regular session of the General Assembly approve by an overwhelming majority the Declaration of Human Rights as a standard of conduct for all. And let us, as members of the United Nations, conscious of our own shortcomings and imperfections, join our effort in good faith to live up to this high standard. And Eleanor Roosevelt showed us the way. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far. Be young and dark, we'll always be. One of the road to leave. Shine your light on me. Shine your light.
fall on your knees to find a love. Your light to me, my only sun. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.